text, Genesis 33, page 26 on the, in the Pew Bible in front of you, if, so, if you so desire to use that. Genesis 33, page 26. Last week we began to look at Genesis chapters 32 through 35 and we got one chapter in. We mentioned it would be simply the first half. And we noticed how God changed Jacob. Here's the good news. God is not asking you to change yourself. As we look at the story of Jacob, we see God wants to change people by His grace in a radical way. Here's the good news. You don't have to change yourself. There's somebody who has the ability to do it, who wants to do that. The story of Jacob is remarkable as you read through the book of Genesis The story of Jacob begins a number of chapters earlier as we looked at, and it extends in bits and parts through chapter 50. And it is a very clear before and after story. And Genesis 33 right in the, is, is right in the middle, so to say, of his life. And it is the dividing point. This unusual to us wrestling match between Jacob and God appearing in human form changes Jacob's life. The Jacob before is the schemer, the cheater, the heel grabber. He's the one who who bargains his brother out of the birthright. He's the one who deceives his father and gets the blessing. He's the one who makes deals for his wives with Laban. A life that's full of dealing and deceiving, a life that's full of self-sufficiency, a life that is, is made on its own. And then, as we are going to begin to see today, after this, this, this encounter with God at night, Jacob's life takes a different turn. And we'll see that today. We'll see it next week. And in weeks to come, as we mingle in the story of Joseph as well. What happened last week? In summary, what happened last week was that Jacob is wrestling with someone who, um, whose identity to him becomes more and more apparent as the overnight goes on. And it appears as though Jacob is a match and an equal for this person But as the dawn starts to shine, this individual touches Jacob's hip, and immediately it's out of joint. The touch is not one of a a wrestling move. It is as simple as a touch. It's meant to give us the idea that this person is supernatural and can do the miraculous. And that touch is one indicator that Jacob's life is going to be different, and the other is the dialogue that God, in human form, has with Jacob. The dialogue goes like this. What is your name? The God-man asks. What is your name? And as we looked at last week, the, 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 the names of people in the Old Testament were not simply identification, hello, my name is. Names in the Old Testament were an exhibition of the character And Jacob honestly, humbly, 
and repentantly in front of God says, I am a heel grabber and I am a cheater. And God in his grace says, I'm going to give you a new identity via a new name. That name is Israel, which means God strives. God strived with Jacob that night, and God won. And he changed who he was. He changed who he was, he gave him a new identity so that his life would take a different trajectory. Now, what we've noticed about the trajectory of these lives of, of the, the, the men in Genesis is that there is an imperfect trajectory, and we're going to see that today. And the good news is that God is not asking us to change ourselves any more than he told Jacob to change himself. He wanted to change him. And the good news is that the, 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 the up and down trajectory that we looked at Abraham... The, the back and forth trajectory that we're going to see with Jacob is where we find ourselves and we can draw confidence that that God who was faithful then is faithful now and still wants to take us to a point of maturity and growth. We look this morning for a brief moment at what Paul says in Romans 6.4 we too might walk in newness of life. We too might walk in newness of life. This is what Jacob encountered. He was going to walk in newness of life, and we're going to see his first steps of that in this uh, chapter 33. As we move into chapter 33, we recognize that the conversion story we looked at last week doesn't look the same as, as maybe your conversion story or mine. Well, it doesn't look the same unless you wrestled with God in human form. If you did, come tell me about that. Our conversion stories don't look like the Apostle Paul's, who was Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Our conversion stories in their particulars are different, but in their main core, they are the same. It is by faith. It is by faith. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that, that Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all of these great Old Testament people, they, they didn't get good with God because they were good people who earned his favor. They were good with God by faith, just as we are. And so Jacob's faith and the expressions of his repentance and the particulars look different, but the changed life that results, well, that is just like what we're supposed to be going through as well. So we come to chapter 33, and we see that changed Jacob takes new steps. Changed Jacob takes new steps. This is the story. If you remember last week, Jacob was on his way back from uh, northern Mesopotamia, the area we would call modern-day Iraq, and he's going back to Israel, modern-day Israel. He's going back to the land of Canaan. And on his way, um, his brother, whom 20 years ago he had fled from, his brother is coming to meet him. And he's coming to meet him with 400 men. 
And this greatly concerns Jacob. And so uh, we find that their encounter takes place in Genesis 33. Let's start reading a section here. Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel, his wives, and the two female servants who also fathered some of his children. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. But he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Changed Jacob takes new steps. If you remember back to last week, what did Jacob do? Jacob divided all that he had into two camps and he sent them on ahead of him while he stayed in the back. He's cowardly, he's afraid, and he's going to hedge his bets. After this experience with God in human form in Genesis 33, he gets out in front. He gets out in front, he goes to his brother, he bows seven times. This is not the way Jacob used to treat Esau. Jacob used to take advantage of Esau. Jacob used to find Esau in his weakness. And in this case, Jacob treats Esau very, very differently. We read the dialogue in verse 4. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. This is probably not the greeting that Jacob expected and it's probably not the greeting you and I would have expected. Why is it that Esau has such a different attitude toward him? Well, let's keep reading and we may get some clues. We, we don't know for sure, but let's see what we can see. When Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. We've never heard Jacob talk in these terms before. He's walking in newness of life. Then um, uh, the, the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Then Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. And Esau said, what do you mean by all the company that I met? If we think back to last week, uh, Jacob sent 550 animals to Esau in three different sections. A bit of a, a peace offering. Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Verse 9, but Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. God had shown Esau, God had shown Jacob unmerited favor, and now Jacob shows Esau unmerited favor, even as Esau shows Jacob unmerited favor. And, and what is Jacob's uh, approach here? I think there is great significance in the fact that Jacob had deceitfully taken the blessing and the birthright from Esau 20 years ago, and now By this huge gesture of 550 animals, I think he is seeking to say, you know what, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have stolen that from you. Please take this. This really lavish gift. 
we're coming up on Christmas season, there will be a December to remember again this year, right? There will be these commercials of a luxury vehicle in the driveway on Christmas morning with a bow on top. That seems like one of the most lavish gifts we could give someone on Christmas. Christy, by the way, I like mine to be red. The car, not the bow. Whatever color you want the bow, I don't care. But 550 animals dwarfs an infinity in the driveway. This is... This is not a coffee mug brought back from a foreign land. This is huge. We don't know what percentage of Jacob's uh, um, net assets this is, but it's significant. This is a changed man being gracious and generous, recognizing the wrong he has done, walking in newness of life. Verse 12, Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house, made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. You know, Jacob, Jacob is offered this chance to go travel with Esau to Seir, but that's not where Jacob has his sights set. Jacob is going back to Bethel. Jacob is on his way to a different location. It's to the east, excuse me, to the west and the south, whereas Esau wants to go basically due south. So Jacob very politely declines the offer. What's up with Esau? Why are Esau and Jacob 20 years later so friendly? Perhaps it's because Esau was changed by that large gift that came in three droves. Maybe that softened Esau's heart. Maybe Esau saw a change in his brother and and he, in his own way, realized that he needed to approach his brother differently. Maybe he had plans for those 400 men to wipe out his brother. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Maybe it's something that Proverbs says, that when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Jacob had just recently been changed. He didn't have a whole lot of time to make his ways please the Lord, but perhaps in God's grace, he makes this situation work out this way. Or, once again, maybe it's just the reality that God had, in his faithfulness, promised that he was going to bring Jacob back to this place in peace. And we're just meant to see that, once again, in spite of the dangers that Jacob finds himself in, God was going to be faithful and perfectly keep that promise. Whatever the case may be, we see Jacob as a changed man here. And I wonder if we want to be changed in that same sort of way. Do we want to be changed or do we want to just nurse a grudge? 
Do, do we want to be changed or do we want to be right? Do we want to be changed or do we want to take our chances that time might heal all wounds? Do we want to be changed or do we think that God might overlook this one again? As pastors, we talked about change a little bit this week and got me thinking, you know, some of us resist change by God because it means that I'm not okay. And we don't naturally like to think that we're not okay. We, we like to naturally think either that we're good enough or that we've arrived. And I'm reminded of what Paul says in Philippians 3, where he very clearly says, I have not arrived, but I press on that I may attain that for which I have been attained. If someone as eminent as Paul says he's not arrived, who would we, myself included, be to think that we've arrived? And so we are in need of change. And we we need not fear that change, my friends. Where in the Bible has God ever changed a person and made them worse? Nowhere. If God gets involved in someone's life and things turn out worse for them, it's because they resisted and God let them have what they want. God can be trusted with your soul. God can be trusted to transform you. God can be trusted with the process of transforming you. Jacob goes into a difficult, intense situation here. In fact, as you read through the rest of the book of Genesis, after his conversion experience, life does not turn into a bed of roses, but is, in fact, one harrowing experience after another. One disappointment after another. But in, in the midst of all these, God is evidently with him, and in the midst of these, God is transforming him and making him a better truster. We move next to chapter 34, and in this chapter we find that this Jacob who walked in newness of life in chapter 33, he he messes up. Chapter 34, Jacob and his sons and or his sons mess up. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to read a couple verses to set the stage, tell the story. It's a difficult chapter to think about, a difficult chapter to read. Uh, Let me back up to verse 18 to give us a little context. They moved to Succoth, and Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. That's that northern Mesopotamia. He camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he, Jacob, bought for a hundred pieces of money the price of land on which he pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. This is significant. Uh, what, what this altar's name means is uh, God, the God of Israel. God, the God of Israel. He is, in his newness of life, identifying God not as simply the God of Abraham, not as the God of his father Isaac, but as his personal God. And what happens next is is something we can all relate with, I think. Now, Dinah, the daughter, 
that is in, in how Jacob and his sons handled this situation poorly. Just as we, even after times of great spiritual strides, can still handle situations poorly. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, uh, he seized her, lay with her, and humiliated her. The rest of the story doesn't really get much better. What we read here is uh, a a crime. I'm going to talk in discrete terms about this this morning. But when the text tells us he seized her, lay with her, and humiliated her, it is communicating exactly the sort of crime of abuse and non-consent that our world currently is focused on. I think one of the things that we want to make sure that we do as we look at chapter 4 is that we do not want to blame Diana for this crime. Because it's a crime committed against her, not a crime that she committed or a crime that she asked for. We live in the era of me too. I don't know everyone's situation and circumstance here this morning. As I talk about this discreetly, I want to make it clear that I strive to talk about this compassionately. Uh, For some of what we might perceive to be some of the faults of the Me Too movement, there is actually much that we need to recognize and learn and change as a church, as the church. In 21st century America. You see, Me Too is more than just Hollywood liberals who have a cause that they wear to award shows. Whether someone has used that hashtag on social media or not, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of women who have thought in their minds Me Too because they have been the victim of something like what we read in Genesis 34 Verse 2. And what we as the church in America should be thinking is not where some um, sinners get it wrong. We, we need to be thinking biblically about what a real victim and what real compassion is like. Because Dinah was a woman who bore the image of God. And that's not how the image of God should be treated. And the Me Too movement is pushing us to think about how women should be treated. And if we think simply in terms of politics, and we don't think in terms of eternal morality, we're missing the point. Anything non-consensual is sin, and that sin cannot be explained away, mitigated, rationalized or diluted. We as Christians and the American church as a whole should be out front proclaiming that female dignity is something given by God and it's not something that should be diminished. The gospel actually elevates the worth of women within its cultures and it's high time we as the church lived up to the ideals of the gospel we believe and the gospel we proclaim. 
And it is unfortunate that society would have to remind us that non-consensual romance is wrong. So as we look at the story of Dinah, we dare not blame her. We don't make judgments against her. We don't call into question her ethics. She is the victim of crime and abuse. And when Christians make victims share the blame for abuse, we are actually perverting justice. We are dimming our gospel light in a world that desperately needs it. One of the things that we have noted as we've looked at the lives of Abraham and Isaac, particularly with a man named Abimelech or men named Abimelech, is that sometimes God's people are less clear on morality than the supposed pagans are. In our 21st century, we dare not repeat that mistake. So as we read this story, let us put the blame where it belongs and not put the blame on Dinah. As the rest of the story goes in these 30-some verses, uh, Jacob finds out about this treachery and he waits until his sons come in from the field. Meanwhile, the young man named Shechem who committed the crime tells his dad Hamor that he wants this daughter. He actually is drawn to her emotionally as well. They keep Dinah at Shechem's place, and Hamor and Shechem go and appear before Jacob and his sons. This is how the culture went in that day. And they ask for uh, permission to take Dinah, even though they already have her back at, at Shechem, the town. They'll pay any price, Shechem says, and the sons of Jacob have an idea. They decide that if the, uh, the residents of the city of Shechem will uh, be circumcised, the men be circumcised, then they will let Dinah marry Shechem. They do this deceitfully. They are not wanting to actually evangelize or pull these men into uh, the family of faith. They actually want to, well, we'll find out in a little bit. Uh, Shechem and his dad Hamor, are, uh, or Hamar, are, are agreeable to this idea. They go back to the city and at the gate, which is kind of the, uh, the common area for conversation and for decision-making, uh, they say to the citizens there, they say, you know what, uh, we've got a potential uh, economic boon on our hands here. If we will just go through the ritual of circumcision, we will be uh, uh, economically linked with these people via marriage and basically their stuff's going to be ours. We're going to make out well on this. Shechem and Hamor conveniently leave out the detail of what Shechem did to Dinah. Uh, they just present this as a wonderful winning opportunity for the city. The men agree to it. They go through the procedure. It hurts. They're in pain. And three days later, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, come to the city and they slaughter all the men who are defenseless, incapacitated by pain. This is why we say Jacob and or his sons mess up. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. Then after that, Jacob's brothers come and they plunder the city. They take the women, they take the possessions... They enrich themselves, and we'll go down to verse 30, chapter 34. Jacob, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, 
You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Even at the end of this tale, Jacob's focus is not on the morality or on the decency or on the dignity of his daughter. It's on the security of their small but prosperous clan. How can this family go through this situation and react in this way? We are reminded that we are looking at imperfectly faithful people following a perfectly faithful God. Sometimes do you look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, how could I do blank? I hope that you do, not because I want you to pull down your self-esteem, but because this sort of confession is, in fact, good for the soul. It is through honesty about our mistakes that we actually start to change. We have already first we have already first we have already read first John one and the beginning of two this morning. I don't want to go back through it, but I would encourage you to go back through it. Because this is what we are supposed to do when we mess up. Jacob and or his sons messed up and, and when you mess up You want to fix it. What do we do to fix it? We confess. Does Jacob confess? We don't know for sure exactly what goes on. The timelines within some of these passages are less clear than others. Whatever Jacob did or didn't do, we know what we are supposed to do when we mess up. Whether we mess up in ways seemingly small or whether we mess up in ways apparently small big. Confession is what cleans up the mess. And here's the wonderful news we read this morning. Not only was God faithful in Genesis, 1 John tells us that he is still faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our mess, all of our unrighteousness. Jacob and or his sons mess up. We know how to fix that. And finally, we come to chapter 35. We come to chapter 35 where God remains faithful and Jacob becomes more faithful. Chapter 34 is certainly a swerve off the pathway of faithfulness. We see something different in chapter 35. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel, dwell there, make an altar to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, the rings that were in their ears, Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Jacob doesn't mess up and give up. Jacob messes up, and when he hears God tell him what to do in building an altar, he goes and he does it. 
In fact, as he goes to prepare for worship, he, he says, we've got to get rid of our gods. Uh, there are two sources for these gods. Either these are the gods that Rachel took from her dad and she stuck them under the camel saddle and sat on it and, and said she couldn't get up. It's either those gods or it could be the gods that the, um, that the, that the, that the sons plundered from the city of Shechem. All that we, what we do know for sure is that Jacob says, we're going to worship God, so we need to get rid of our idols. He, he's, he's growing in faithfulness. This is a step in the right direction. God doesn't cast him off because of how he and his boys messed up in the city of Shechem. He actually wants him to come to worship at a place of sacrifice. And so Jacob prepares for that. Some have wondered why he hides them under the the tree there near Shechem. I think he hides them there so that the family can't go back and get them. He doesn't just take them and he keeps them in, 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 a, in a compartment or a chest and they take them with him where they go. No, he wants, he wants them buried. He wants them done. He wants to put distance between his family and idols. How wonderful to see this, this, this not the word repentance, this action of repentance. And so we come to verse 5. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities. Remember how afraid Jacob was? That his boys' actions had made them stink to the people. A terror fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him. When he fled from his brother, El Bethel, God at the house of God, God of the house of God. We see sadness follow again. Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried under the oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. An aside, Rebecca it seems, never gets to see Jacob after she sends him over to Uncle Laban. And this is a brief reminder of that grief. So they come to Luz there at Bethel. It says in verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram, and he blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful, multiply a nation, and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I, I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. God appeared to him once again in some sort of human form. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it, poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Sometimes we get frustrated with repetition in our Bible. Sometimes we may think, yeah, we just read that a week ago and and two weeks ago. Why, Why do we have to read that again? My friends, don't you want someone to reaffirm their love for you when you mess up? We all do that. Maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's a parent. You come to that point in humility and you realize, okay, I messed up, I did wrong, 
and you go and you apologize, and what you're hoping to hear is, I forgive you, I love you, that's not going to separate us. That's what God does for Jacob here. He goes to Bethel, and God repeats to him, after that, that horrendous reaction at the city of Shechem, God repeats to him, I am still your God, Jacob. I'm faithful. I'm still going to keep that promise. You're imperfectly faithful, but I'm perfectly faithful. I'm going to keep that promise. And Jacob doesn't think to himself, yes, God, it pulled one over on me. No, no, no. In humility, Jacob builds an altar. And I don't know for sure if he went back and found that same stone he pillowed his head on or not, but he, he, he gets a stone for a pillar just like he did 20 Eight, 30 years before, and he worships. And he remembers the God who has not cast him off. This is a changed man. Not making deals. Graciously accepting goodness. My friends, this is how our sanctification goes as well. Sometimes we have faith, Sometimes we don't have faith. Sometimes we believe and sometimes we are less than believing. And so we remember the words from the New Testament, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Where has, where has belief led you to obey this week? Where has unbelief led you to disobey this week? God's been the same all the way through. And so if you're one of the people in this room this morning who wants to change, who wants to be more consistent, is there hope? There is hope. We say God wants to change us. We say we don't have to change ourselves. How are we going to get that help? Let's look at these words from 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, and we all Paul and the Corinthians and us, we all Christians with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. How do we get changed? One degree plus one degree plus one degree. Think about a protractor. Protractor, little half moon thing you used in school. Most of you took that protractor, it had a hole in the middle. You stuck your pencil through that hole and you spun it around. But that really is not what the protractor was for, right? Take your protractor and then get another protractor, put those two halves together. You have 360 degrees. 360 of them. And God says that he changes us from one degree of glory to another. Think about how small one of those 360 degrees is. Think about over time how those degrees add up. And your life is now 45 degrees different than what it used to be. Or 90 degrees different from what it used to be. 
What we want is the big jump. What God wants to do is one degree at a time. Bible scholars call it progressive sanctification. I call it insanely slow. But it's God's work in God's time. Really, as we let him. We could speed it up if we wanted to. It takes place one degree at a time, but what else does this verse tell us? It, it tells us that it happens as we behold the glory of the Lord. As we behold the glory of the Lord, and you could say, I'd never seen God, and I think the Bible says if I saw him, I would die. Yeah, yes, yes. This is going back to a story of Moses. I'm not going to go into all of it. But Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he was glowing because he'd been affected by the glory of God. How do you and I see the glory of God today? We see it in creation. The heavens declare his glory. And we also see and we more fully see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. John 1 tells us that that his glory is that glory of grace and truth. Where do we see Jesus? We see the living word in the written word. And so seeing the glory of God starts with us being in our Bibles, but it doesn't end with just reading a passage and checking it off. Beholding the glory of Jesus within the Bible means that we are going to ponder that. We're going to meditate on that. It is not the semantics of reading. It is not the pedantic practice of, of, of consuming words. It is the meditation on the living word that will make us like a tree planted by rivers of water. It is that meditation on Jesus that will start to change us bit by bit. By bit. And finally, the verse tells us that we have an advantage in God's unique Bible history that Jacob didn't have. This comes from the Spirit of the Lord. You have, by God's grace, if you're a Christian, God within you. Why didn't Jacob? I don't know. That's God's business. But you have God in you. You have the Holy Spirit. I appreciated Rick's comments. The Father, the Son we sang about. And then we ended with the Holy Spirit. Those phrases about the Holy Spirit. He who breathes new life wants to breathe new life in us. And I wonder if you're not feeling the change. If you're not seeing the change. If you're not experiencing the change. Are you beholding the glory of Jesus? Are you pondering His death in your place? Are you pondering His resurrection so you can live in newness of life? Are you trusting the Spirit to change you? Because the good news is you don't have to change yourself. God, by His grace, radically changes Jacob into Israel. God, by His grace, radically changes people. God, by His grace, wants to radically change you.
Will you let him? Will you pray for it? Let's bow to pray. Heavenly Father, as we take a moment of silence, may each one here respond to your word as they should. God, may your spirit create within us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. May your spirit uh, uh, want, uh, cause us to want to be changed. As we pray now silently.